0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Self-Pro Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb, a historian of Judaism and Director of Jewish Studies at the Spurtis Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago.
0: And I'm Mode Silva. Yeah, I am. I am Modius Silva. I'm still am. I know you asked me that last week also. You you are. And I thought, is that a question? <laughs> Yes, I'm Modia Silva. I I think the sound of my voice is putting you to sleep or something. (laughs) Carry on. Who did you say you were? Uh, Well, that's assuming I know, but my name is Modia Silva. I'm in Toronto, Canada, and I'm a psychotherapist and an author and loving what we're doing with this podcast.
1: Yes, this is a lot of fun. So what we're doing, if you haven't tuned in with us before, is we're going through every Parshat HaShavua in in Torah, and we're doing it using Rabbi Menachem Mendeleffen's Heshbon HaNefesh to see what we can learn about the different midot or character traits from the Parsha of the week. We stick with one Parsha for four consecutive weeks and move on to the next. This week, we are, are considering the, the midah or character trait of order. And we are reading Parshat Vayigash in the book of Genesis. So, Moja, what do you think Vayigash can tell us? What are some of your thoughts about what it can
0: tell us about order? Um, Okay, I actually do have some thoughts, but I want to rewind. I I want to step aside for a moment and just share with you. I was thinking about order, and I was thinking about your and my studies of Musar over the last, I don't know, 15 to 20 years. Yeah. and then I was thinking about Friday night dinner and how I bought a dessert for the family and then realized that it was dairy. And my some of my kids now eat chicken. And so because we keep kosher, they couldn't have their main course and then have the dessert after because, because I'm from England, we hold by three hours. We have to wait three hours after eating meat before we can eat dairy. So... It was like, oh, we're going to have to start the meal with dessert, with the dairy first, and then clear everything off, and then you can have your chicken meal. I was like, oh, right. So this is like order. This is like we have a sense of what order should be, and why do we hold on to that so rigidly? And then I was thinking, well, that's what you and I, I think, have learned and studied together when it comes to Mussar, is that we learn about these traits and we read amazing texts from beautiful writers from hundreds of years ago about Mussar. And then we sometimes get locked into this idea that, oh, this is the way it has to be. And I think for me, it was like, oh, uh, just a reminder that it's like, OK, hold the frame very loosely, like make it work for uh-huh. you, but don't throw out the wisdom of the sages at the same time. Wow! And so, uh, so everybody had dessert first. Sounds right. like so we all had dessert first, and it was great. And who wants to eat after you've filled up with dessert?
1: Absolutely,
0: no. Yeah. I would say, okay, thanks very much. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, and it, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, in this parsha, that we see um, Joseph's for order, uh, his really remarkable administrative skills in saving the Egyptians and his own family from famine. But as we often see in modern life, people who are fantastic administrators, uh, aren't as good at family life. Sometimes it's hard to hold together a holistic picture uh, of what life can be and to bring both administrative skill and patience and compassion and, of course, order um, to places where disorder often rears its head, which is family life. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I'm interested by how... Uh, Joseph is really good at making sure that the land can survive famine, but it seems that um, he is less—he doesn't really know how to proceed without at least a little bit of subterfuge or maybe even revenge against his brothers for what they did to him. I mean, he puts them through a lot of stuff, but at the end, he says— as he does when he's interpreting dreams, that everything happens for a reason. Joseph's theology is that everything happens for a reason. And the reason that his brothers threw him into the pit wasn't their evil doing. It was God preparing to save his family and also all the people of Egypt from a terrible famine. That was coming. And Joseph's administrative skill in overseeing this um, is played against his desire to make his brothers suffer a little bit until he can't stand it anymore. And I think the sages of rabbinic tradition are a little ambivalent about why he feels he needs to do this. It's clear that Joseph winding up in Egypt is really, you know, it's great because it means. Jacob and his descendants survive a horrible famine, um, but his brothers are still terrified of him. He had to tell them to
0: provoke him.
1: He uh, They worry after Jacob dies uh, later on that he's going to finally exact their revenge on him. Nobody in this family, I guess what I'm saying is nobody trusts anybody. Trust is a kind of order. But so much bad has already happened in this family that um, Joseph's way of dealing of, with it seems to be to create order everywhere, but order that only he controls. And I, it concerns me, and I, I sort of don't know what else to say about it, because what winds up happening is that he winds up enslaving the Egyptians. Now, as slavery goes, it's not that bad, but it's still,
0: they become serfs to Pharaoh, and he is Pharaoh's right hand. Right. Like little by little, he takes away everything, right? Takes away their money first and then takes away their land. And then, right. Takes then away their cattle, food. right? Then gives them seed, right. but they have to pay for it. Then their money
1: runs out. Right. Right? right. And pretty soon, everything that is theirs and they themselves belong to Pharaoh. And the sages yeah. say, perhaps the enslavement of Israel is, of course, the sages don't use this word, but is kind of a karmic, you know, in the contemporary use of that term, sort of a sort of a. Uh, a kind of divine justice that, just as Joseph enslaved the Egyptians, so the Israelites
0: become enslaved to the Egyptians. Right, your thought. Well, I well, I, I agree. It's a real conundrum. And so Joseph is a big character. He's looking after the an, an entire country. And I just think the bigger the project, the more likelihood there is that you're going to trip up or you know lose lose the theme somewhere. I was thinking as you as you started to talk i was thinking about that video that went viral during COVID, where there was some i don't know who it was but some guy was sitting down in front of his zoom screen and then the door opened to his office and this little kid of his started either crawling in or walking in and, and instead jumping of jumping around dancing yeah. up, up, right? and so instead of like turning and just dealing with his son and saying hey i love you i'll talk to you later he was like pushing him out of the screen right? because he decided that it was more important for his image whatever to be uh, to be interviewed cleanly on the screen so i i agree right. i don't know what's up with joseph there's so i think stress plays a large part and maybe that has to maybe we have to talk about that that there's a lot of stress in this family Right. I mean, yeah. they all right. They the whole story is a stressful story. They come down to Egypt because there's a famine. Even that's stressful. They leave their father, their old father behind. They leave Benjamin, the youngest, behind. They like every step of the way is stressful. And then, and I think we see that because at the end, Yehuda speaks to Joseph, speaks to Joseph. And if I can just read it, chapter forty four eighteen. It says, Yehuda came near to him and said, oh my Lord, talking to Joseph, let your servant me, I pray you speak a word in your Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are even as Pharaoh, as Pharaoh. So already he's recognizing that this is an elevated emotional situation. And at the beginning of the speech that Yehuda then goes on to give, he describes what happened to them from the day they set foot in Egypt But if you look at the speech, it's not right. That's not what happened to them. There are several notable differences between what actually happened and what Yehuda says. For example, he says in verse 19 and 20, My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, Yeah, we've got a father, an old man and a child of his old age, a little one, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. But Yosef never asked the brothers if they had a father or a brother, and then Yehuda never told him that Benjamin Benjamin was the only son left to his to his mother. So he's making this stuff up, or his frontal cortex is shut off because he's in a high stress mode, and he's like mm-hmm. pleading, essentially pleading for his life. Right. And how can you have order when you can't think rationally? So that's certainly one way to look
1: at it. The way I thought about it was that Judah is subtly changing the story. And we're going to see this later when Abraham's servant retells everything that happens when he encounters Rebecca at the well, when he goes off looking for a wife Mm -hmm. for Isaac. Right. Whenever, whenever in Torah, anybody, and especially in the book of Genesis retells an event that we have already read there are subtle differences. Now, if you're into biblical criticism, you could say that different versions were floating around, and whoever um, w- wrote this uh, didn't uh, have access to the other version. If, in your view, it's divinely inspired, you can say that the servant is, or that the servant in the story of uh, of Rebecca uh, and uh, and Judah here are making these subtle differences apparent deliberately. In this case, why would Judah do it? I think you pointed out why, which is in a way that he wants, he, he's showing how sensitive the brothers are to the father's pain and attachment to Benjamin because he he believes it will work on this stranger whom he still doesn't know is Joseph. So the lesson here to me in terms of order has to do simply with narrative and the way we talk to people. The order we put things in, the themes and facts or suppositions that we highlight, the way we talk to people, the way we interact with people has an effect on them. And we we know many different ways to interact with people in very sensitive ways to maximize interactions. I mean, you as a therapist are, I would guess, extremely expert at this. And Judah is playing on, hoping to play on this stranger's sympathies by subtly altering the story. In so doing, he reorders what he he is hoping to reorder what this powerful man's priorities are are going to be. Are they going to be to make these guys suffer? are they going to be to enslave the youngest kid or is it going to be to have compassion?
0: That's interesting. That's so it's a very different take. And of course there's no one take that is absolutely correct. And I, I, so I I, I like what you're saying because the story does go on and eventually Joseph breaks down, right. And cries on everyone's shoulder. Yeah. And so it's possible that Judah or Yehuda um, did know what he was doing and was conscious about making the changes as a way to experiment with who is this guy and can we actually get him on our side maybe realizing right. and maybe not even realizing <clears throat> was was the brother there's a can I, I i it's not a musa story but can i share this cool story please um, do so the big reveal, um, the big reveal happens in this pasha in Vayigash, where Joseph finally says, hey, look at me, I'm your brother, right? So there's a Rabbi Safran, an American rabbi who lives in Canada now, in Calgary, Alberta, and he told me this story that I think is so cool. So he raised his family in Muncie, New York, and he went back- Big to- Orthodox community. A big Orthodox community, Right. And he's Orthodox. He's an Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Saffron. And he went back to see one of his sons or to see the son's family over the, the December break, the end of December. And so he's sitting in the bus station in Muncie, waiting for his son to come pick him up. And he's a short, small man. And this huge Santa Claus guy comes up to like is walking around the bus station and finally comes over, over to Rabbi Saffron and stands in front of him and leans into him. And goes, ho ho, ho, ho. And Rabbi Saffron is like scared and he pulls his bags closer to him on the bench. And he kind of nods at the Santa Claus, and the Santa Claus walks away. And then three, four minutes later, Santa Claus comes back and he goes, Merry Christmas. And then he looks at Rabbi Saffron's head and sees the keeper on his head. And he goes, Oh, sorry. Happy um Hanukkah, Hanukkah, right? And Rabbi Saffron pulls his bags even closer to him and he nods and he goes, Yes, yes, Hanukkah. And Santa Claus goes away. And he comes back a third time and he stands in front of Rabbi Saffron and he puts one hand on his big white beard and one hand on his red hat and he pulls them off and he says, Abba, it's me. It was the <laughs> it, it was Rabbi Saffron's son the whole time. <laughs> And besides being freaked out, I love that story. Yeah. Besides being freaked out, Rabbi Saffron said for the first time in his life he understood va'yigash. He understood this pasha. He understood. Wow. The brothers could be in a foreign place and not know that that was that Joseph was standing in front of him. That the brother was in front of them. That's a great story. As you were telling it, I was thinking,
1: what is a santa claus doing in the bus station in Monster? <laughs> right. that's just asking for trouble I, it was probably his perm costume left over it's fantastic it's just fantastic um when joseph reveals himself to his brothers in uh uh genesis 45 verse 4 then joseph said to his brothers come forward to me so they're all hanging back they're all blown away No idea what to say or do. When they came forward, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, he whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be distressed or reproach yourselves because you sold me hither. It was to save life that God sent me ahead of you. It is now two years that there's been famine in the land, and there are still five years to come in which there should be no yield from tilling. God has sent me ahead of you to ensure your survival on earth. In other words, uh, Joseph is not focusing on the Egyptians here. He said, this happened so your lives could be saved. Mm. In uh, And he says, so in verse 8, 45, verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his household and ruler over the whole land of Egypt. Um, it's... Uh, it's interesting that he says ruler over the whole land of Egypt uh, because the word translated here as ruler, Moshel, as the Eitz uh translation commentary notes, uh, reminds us of the brother's reactions to Joseph's dreams. When he's telling them the dreams where he's all special in the dreams, they had scornfully asked him, do you mean to rule over us? Part mm-hmm. of and this is so fascinating to me because I think part of order is um, is a certain amount of humility, of knowing that there are consequences to our actions, no matter how much we would like to control them, but we cannot see over the horizon to the ultimate consequences of those actions ever. But a certain kind of disciplined approach means that we will have a better idea than we normally would to knowing what will result from our actions and to me that is the major lesson lesson of this parsha with respect to order
0: yeah that's great because um because we've said this before in previous episodes that one meter actually affects multiple me dot all that yep. the, they all work together as a system and so it makes sense what you're saying about hu- humility i was also thinking about it in terms of emuna because oh oh it's not about you guys. It's actually God had this entire plan yeah. and whether I like it or not, right I'm down here in Egypt and I've got to fulfill the plan. I've got, I've got to have a Muna or faith or trust or however we want to define a Muna. I think that's a great lesson. And maybe this is a short episode. Maybe that's a perfect way to finish this episode. I is, think so. Yeah. Is, um, right it's like order when i think about order i want to do this today and i've got to do it in this sequence and then i want to pull back and say is that in line with my desire to connect with the divine i want to have a closer relationship constantly with god and i've but i've got this order i've got to go do this and then this and then this i got to pick up the laundry i've got to you know dry cleaning all that stuff and no, I don't have time to help you with your homework. Or no, I don't. I, I no, I can't sit with you in front of the fireplace and have a chat. It's like, and it's like, oh, is that really what I'm supposed to be doing on this planet? Is that really right. the relationship I'm supposed to be having? Right. And you know,
1: if we follow the kind of program that uh, Rabbi Leffen recommends in Heshbon HaNefesh, we should look over. Our our actions during the day, and ask ourselves: Did this bring me closer to the divine? Did this did what I did today fall into line with my purpose uh, as I understand it in this life? That is, I think, a wonderful way to
0: approach the Midav order. Lovely, that's fantastic. How about we finish there, David?
1: Okay. So thanks for hanging in there with us. Um, This has been another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. We're delighted that you're listening and coming along this journey with us. I'm David Gottlieb.
0: And I'm Modia Silva. We'll see you next time. Bye.